is good Bruin Bible listeners it is your host Will Decker we got to get a sponsor in before we start this episode it's bet online bet online is your number one source for all your basketball info stats news and scores get the latest odds and lines and the latest matchup reports for this year's NBA playoffs bet online is your sports intel headquarters this season as we have you covered for your insider sports wagering needs from basketball, Major League Baseball, NHL, hockey, golf, to UFC and boxing. The fastest and easiest way to get your betting info, including live betting options and your favorite casino and card games available to play right from your home. Make sure you check out Bet Online. Get into the action today. So head to the website or use your mobile device to join and be sure to use your promo code BELIEVE to receive your 50% bonus on your first deposit. Bet online where the game starts now to the Bruin Bible. What is up and welcome to another edition of the Bruin Bible. Will Decker, your host, here with the man, the myth, the legend, the baby blue snapback, Mr. Jamal Madney in the house for those that can see him. Jamal, what is going on on this fine Wednesday? It's great to see you as always, my dude. Great to see you as always, Will. Uh, You know, great day today. Even better when we can talk the Bruins and when we can talk the Bruins together. So, Hard to believe, Will. We're just a couple of weeks out from September 2nd and the opening of the season. Uh, it feels like we've been talking about, you know, that pit game and, and sort of recruiting and spring ball and fall camp for nine or ten months now. You know, it hasn't been quite that long, but it's felt like a really long time. So to actually have real football upon us here, very, very exciting. So pumped, man. I mean, we are literally counting down the days we are in August, the dog days of August, but boy, that that September first weekend is coming, and it's going to be exciting. The masses out here who follow UCLA football as we do, I think we got to start at the top, man. I think I initially was a little disappointed with the ranking that came in for UCLA because I do believe, and Chip believes. I mean, Chip even came out and said this is the deepest roster he's had in terms of depth at his time at UCLA. Uh, we came out and we're ranked number twenty-eight you know, in the initial AP poll. And before I get your thoughts on this, I kind of did some reflecting. And as much as it pains me not to see us in the top 25 this year, I kind of understand in a lot of ways. You know, what's the last time they saw us play? It was the Pitt Bowl game. We left a very bad taste in the voters' mouth. You know, we lost some games we should have won last year, the Arizona game being one of those. Um, You know, a couple others down the stretch there, but – I think for me, I think we're better in an underdog mode. And I think that's why I'm excited about this team moving forward. This is a team that I think encourages and welcomes being counted out of the top 25. And I think the the fruits of our, you know, our, our harvest will show here very soon, my man. So give me your thoughts on the initial ranking. And then maybe we can dive into some teams in the past that have really made some jumps when it comes to getting into the top 25 that were initially unranked to begin with, which I think the Bruins are completely capable of, man. Yeah, well, I think you said it really well. 
I think for folks, folks shouldn't be discouraged in any way, shape, or form that this team is a preseason uh, unranked outside of the top 25 for one primary reason. The preseason rankings are a function of familiarity. And yeah. so familiarity means either we saw this group perform really, really well the year before and or there is a lot of name recognition from the year before of folks that we understand what they're capable and what their statistics are. If you look at both of those factors, Will, that familiarity lacks with this roster. So to your earlier point, last time UCLA played, tough loss at Pitt, ended up being four losses on the season. It was nine and four last year, right? So they, UCLA didn't fall, didn't finish in the top 25 at the end of last year. So what reason would you have to put them in the top 25 to start this year? So that's number one. There was a lack of familiarity of performance as a team last year. But second, it's that name recognition. And when you look at the primary positions on the field, quarterback, running back, wide receiver, UCLA's got new guys from a national perspective. The Will Deckers of the world, the Madmans of the world, we understand who these guys are on a very deep level, an intimate analysis level, when we talk about Ethan Garbers, when we talk about TJ Harden, going and watching J. Michael Sturdivant, understanding who Kyle Ford is from across town. But last year, none of those guys were here. DTR was the quarterback. Charbonnet was the running back. Bobo was the receiver that was getting all the pub. All three of those guys are being replaced. So it's the lack of familiarity from a name recognition standpoint. And, you know, it's it reminds me, Will, of that old baseball commercial remember when you know mcguire and sosa were doing their thing and greg maddox and tom glavin were in those commercials where they oh, said yeah. you know chicks dig the long ball you know so as much as we love the layatu latus of the world as much as we love the darius muasaus of the world and the murphy twins preseason rankings are about the sexiness of college football and sexiness is equated to offense and so when you don't have that name recognition on offense coupled with the fact that you didn't finish in the top 25 last year, there's really no reason to be in the top 25 this year from a preseason standpoint. Having said all of that, that doesn't mean this team isn't loaded, which they are. It's just the national media, the average fan needs to catch up in understanding these new guys being the household names. Yeah, and it's going to be fun to watch that play out. I think such a deep and talented roster. And I just know... We have the pieces and the coaching in place to really make that jump this year. And we kind of had a fun exercise where we kind of pushed ourselves with teams that we thought, and, you know, we went back and looked at, you know, the historical rankings of the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, maybe a couple more that we want to discuss a little further away that we came into the season unranked or, you know, very lowly ranked in the mid twenties and climbed those rankings up to, either a top five, top three finish, to even some national champions within those groups. Madman, I'm going to give you the floor. Who are some of these teams that come to mind to you that UCLA should be looking to replicate when they come into the season and try to make some plays? Yeah, Will, it's, it's a great point. And I'll start the conversation. I know we're going to have really fun with this conversation in terms of back and forth. But rather than sort of lay it all out there to, to start, I'm going to sort of focus on the immediate past. So let's talk about the last three years, for instance, you know, just the kind of the COVID season and the last two years of looking at it from that standpoint. So the 2020, the 2021 and the 2022 season, 
And when you look at those seasons, there's four teams that jumped to mind that started the year unranked and finished in the top 10. And when you think about last year, you think about the University of Washington. When you think about last year, you think about Tennessee. When you think about the 2022 season, you think about Baylor. When you think about the 21 season, uh, the, the, the 21 season, you think Baylor. And when you think about the 20 season, you think Iowa State. And so all four of those teams, Will, went from unranked in the preseason to finishing in the top 10, double-digit wins, major bowl games, and really set their programs up for success. And when you look at some of the common denominators there of those teams, A, you see a guy who was very experienced at quarterback, who either was there the first year or came. When you think about Michael Penix Jr. or Herndon Hooker, or Bohannon from Baylor, or your man, Brock Purdy from Iowa State. All of those guys came into this system as either juniors or seniors. And, and really, there was a lot of experience, had some hard knocks, and, and came in kind of ready to prove themselves. Then you saw teams where the schedule they got some schedule breaks in some tough conferences. You know, those Big 12 teams avoided having to play Oklahoma and Texas. You know, Tennessee obviously ended up getting uh, Alabama and Georgia, but the rest of the schedule was a little light. They, they sort of avoided some of the harder SEC teams. And so they caught some schedule breaks. And then the third element was all of those conferences were so deep that they kind of beat up on each other. And so you had the opportunity for a two-loss team with the right tie break to kind of get in there. And so when you think about sort of the makeup of the 2023 season here at UCLA, you look at the schedule and you say, look, there's three tough games like we talked about at Utah, at Oregon State, at USC. But look who's not on the schedule. Not Oregon. Not Washington. UCLA has actually caught a break, a schedule break, given how deep the Pac-12 is, that 40% of the other contenders, they don't play. Then when you sort of look at how is this Pac-12 sort of set up this year, You've got five teams in the top 25, and we're talking about UCLA, rightfully so, as a team that should be there. That's six teams that are going to be sort of round-robin playing each other. There's going to be some cannibalism here that, that where these teams are going to be knocking each other off. It's going to be hard for one team to separate. And then third, you have guys that are going to be experienced at some of these key positions. Now, J. Michael Sturdivant and Kyle Ford, big-time performers of big-time programs at wide receiver. T.J. Harden, you and I have talked about how much he played meaningful ball last year. Yankov, let's not forget about Carson Steele being the ninth leading rusher in college football last year. And then, of course, at the quarterback position, the one outlier here is between Moore and Garbers. But if Chip does choose to go with Garbers, you're talking about a guy who's four years in the program. So when you look at the last couple of years of the, what is sort of the common denominator, the common themes of these teams making these jumps, UCLA fits that mold really well to set up for a massive 2023 season. Yeah, explosive playmakers, talent littered all over the offense. Uh, I think they have the potential to have 2,000-yard rushers if everything goes well with the hard and steel combination there. You know, and I, I have faith in whoever they trot out there, quarterback, whether it's Garbers or more, you know, week one for UCLA. So it's going to be fun. I got a list of three teams that come to mind that really made some dents, you know, in college football over the last decade, if you will, when it comes to being unranked and making some appearances, maybe they didn't finish there in the end, 
like the first team I'm going to start with, but they really made an impact. And I know you know this team. SEC football is as tough as it gets. And when you're looking at, you know, maybe who might be the, you know, bottom of the barrel teams, you know, when it comes to the SEC, it was shocking in 2014 when Mississippi State went from unranked to 13th to number three in the country in a matter of weeks. Dak Prescott, obviously the leader of that team, came in there, really changed the culture out there in Starkville and got them winning ballgames. You know, and if if Mississippi State – it's kind of the Oregon State thing for me. If Mississippi State is winning 9-10 games, I believe that was under Dan Mullen at that time who literally went back to Florida, was Tebow's offensive coordinator in the Florida years, and went back and was a head coach there for a second stint. Wasn't as successful, but that shows you how much faith – I think programs have, if you're able to rebuild a Mississippi state, if you're able to rebuild an Oregon state teams like this, that's a team I got to start with. Do you remember watching this team? Because I was in one of my first years of college during that time. And I was just blown away by the fact that Mississippi state was a consensus top three team for a couple of weeks there. I don't know. They didn't finish there, but that's damn impressive. Nonetheless. No, no question. I remember that team very well, Will. And first of all, I may I don't drink, but I may have to start drinking after you <laughs> said you were in college in 2014 because it's starting to oh, age man. me, you know, in, in a significant oh, way. So, you know, that's number one. So but let's put my, you know, social depression aside for a minute. Talk football. You know, <laughs> I, I remember that team extremely well. And you you said it so well in terms of Mississippi State. I believe they started that year seven and oh. And, and Dak was absolutely phenomenal that year and really carried them. And I think what the parallel was, you brought it up, was the Dan Mullen factor. And, and the fact that he had such a successful run with Florida and with Tebow, he knew that conference really well and then came back to the conference after some experiences and was able to sort of employ his style in this new situation at a time when... Georgia wasn't quite Georgia yet. LSU was sort of in between their waves. Florida was in between their waves. So there was that wedge that Mississippi State had. Frankly, Will, that was the year Old Miss was phenomenal as well. And there was a lot of conversation that the Egg Bowl that year could be number one versus number two. And, it would, you know, it would never happen again. And so there was so much excitement there. That team really kind of set Mississippi State football on fire And I think the Mullen-Chip comparison is really apt because when you think about Mullen at Florida, obviously some different circumstances, but then Chip at Oregon, you know, two very iconic runs. They go do some other things, then they come back, and now they have a new quarterback where they can sort of open up their offense. And when you think about Dak, he was built a lot like Tebow, but a much more polished passer. And now when you think about who the UCLA quarterback is going to be, whether it's Garbers or Moore, I think that outside of Mariota, okay, at Oregon, this may very well be Chip's most talented quarterback at the collegiate level. When you look at Mazzoli, Darren Thomas at Oregon, and then DTR, you know what a DTR guy I am, Will. But when you look at both of these guys, just in terms of decision-making, making the right throws, being able to make a lot of the throws, and, and knowing when to sort of give up on a play, all of that put together – Garbers and Moore, either one, have the potential to be the second-best quarterback under Chip Kelly from a collegiate football standpoint. So, again, taking that team to the next level I think is going to be huge. There's a lot of parallels there with Mississippi State. Yeah, and I 
you know, they had the quarterback, but they also had Chris Jones, like phenomenal defensive tackle. He was probably the best defensive tackle in all of football last year. Yes. So it wasn't just an offensive thing. They had, you know, they could dictate the run game, the, the gaps when it came to the defensive line. And, you know, people, you know, you either love or you hate the Cowboys. Dak, despite some of his erratic throws at times, is just a guy you just like. I just Absolutely. like everything I've seen from the guy. Love his interviews. He looks like a leader out there. Just a guy I really enjoy. As somebody that detests the uh, Dallas Cowboys. So I got to give it up to our guy Dak. What's another team, Madman, that you saw that was like a good fit uh, for UCLA? So Thriller, I mean, there there were a few here in terms of teams where they started, you know, sort of under the radar and then they jumped. I'll be honest with you, Will. One team that also really came to mind in 2021, they started ranked, but no one really knew where they were was Michigan. And when you think about Michigan, they were sort of low teens, high 20s, mid 20s at the start. If you recall, the 2020 season ended very badly for Jim Harbaugh. There was a lot of conversation about whether or not he was going to get fired. You know, there was that one game up in Wisconsin where they just got their doors blown off and everyone was just sort of ready to undo with this offense. And Harbaugh kind of went back to his roots, if you will. And he sort of went back to sort of what made him Harbaugh. I think he sort of lost a little bit of that. Um, in, in the late 2010s and, and early 2020s, kind of went back to power football, but also got the right coaches around him from an offensive standpoint. He understood that he was sort of a power football guy, a guy who really understood the trenches, but needed to have a coaching staff around him that was able to sort of complement those skills. And he was stubborn the first couple of years in sort of going about an approach of, that worked maybe before, but didn't work anymore. Sound familiar? You know, when you look at Chip, And for all the wisdom that he has, and you and I are very pro-Chip, just given what his achievements are, the one knock has been, in terms of his staff, has he been able to hire for his blind spots? And that was always a question, whether it was, you know, his, his past defensive coordinators, whether it was his sort of recruiting team, whether it was sort of youth at the position coach standpoint, there were always some questions around whether Chip had a round enough staff. And now you look with DeAnton Lynn, and you, and then not, not to mention, obviously, the Ken Nortons and Deshaun's and Jerry Neuheisel's, but now Chip has put the, his blind spots together in terms of a staff that allows him to kind of go back to his roots. And again, now when you see him getting it going with the running game, and you, we talked about Harden and Steele and Yankoff and potentially a two-headed thousand-yard rushing monster, We talk about what he's going to get at the quarterback position. This is the best top-end receiving group I have seen at UCLA in maybe two decades. You know, when you talk about J. Michael Sturdivant and Kyle Ford, I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. And then you look at everybody. We've already talked about all the guys, the Oladijas and, and, you know, the Moasaus and and kind of the freaks that we have in the front seven. So there's a lot kind of coaching-wise, structurally, that looks a lot like Michigan at 21, a team that, you know, was sort of teetering in one direction with a coach that wasn't really sure if he could adapt. And then once that coach adapt, they jumped and made a huge leap in terms of the sport. And I think Chip is on the cusp there of going from someone who's flying under the radar to a perennial top 20 team, potentially a perennial top 15 team. 
and go from there. So that element of Michigan, to me, very synonymous with UCLA, not to mention the fact that now they're going to be sharing a conference. And there's so many similarities in terms of how the team is constructed, the culture, the academics, the whole deal. Yeah, no, I think that's a great pick. Uh, I think, you know, just to kind of pivot back to what Harbaugh was, I think he got caught up with trying to beat Ohio State and lost himself along yes. the way. And when he went back to what has always worked for him, voila, you see Michigan two straight victories against Ohio State, preseason number two team, likely to be the rival of UCLA that's not USC within the conference, uh, just given its well-rounded academia standpoint and just everything that they offer, you know, athletically as a well-rounded school. So very excited for us to play them. A couple other schools, I mean, Notre Dame 2012, what a magical campaign. I thought about them with the Muwasau, uh, you know, uh, Manti Teo comparison. Very similar like players. I think Teo is a little bit bigger, a little bit stronger. But we we made the comparison to Muwasau to Teo yes. last year. I thought it was fitting because he made the biggest interceptions in the biggest games. I mean, the Utah game, Muwasau's making Manti Teo had five or six interceptions. All were against ranked teams in huge games, whether it was against Oklahoma, whether it was against the peak of those, some of those Stanford teams, uh, you know, with David Shaw, USC at the end of the year when they beat them. He was just making play after play and really willed Notre Dame to, let's be honest, they lost to a team that I think nobody had losing in Alabama. So, I mean, that was kind of the, 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 the quest for runner-up, if you will, because that Alabama team was so stacked, it's almost like, Who's going to come in second place this year? Because we know who's going to be number one if everything goes their way. Uh, UCF, Central Florida was the other team I thought of. Scott, the rise and fall of Scott Frost, man. Wow. That was a, a wild turn of events. He went from 6-7 and seven his first year at Central Florida, 13-0. and 0. Not going to call it a national championship. I scoff at that from the Central Florida fan base. They want to rule themselves national champions after finishing sixth in the national polls. Just can't do it, madman. So, those are the two teams that came to mind. But to kind of piggyback into our latest segment, this is the offensive line preview, man. And this is a group that I'm actually really, really excited to talk about because I'm very confident in a lot of areas. I'm actually more confident in our secondary this year uh, as opposed to our offensive line. And I've done some a lot of research digging on some of the guys that we have and just from what we were able to watch in spring practice to what do we see now – and the one common denominator that kind of piggybacks off Harbaugh once again is Tim Drevno. Tim Drevno, the offensive line coach, he made his kind of bones in the coaching world uh, with Jim Harbaugh at Stanford, then followed him to the NFL in the 49ers, went and coached at Stan uh, Stanford once again, USC, Michigan, and has found his way to UCLA. And, you know, last year when we had lost Justin Fry, who for all intents and purposes is one of the best offensive line coaches in the country. Ohio State plucked him from UCLA and is now the offensive line coach for the Buckeyes. I was worried. I thought this was going to be a very difficult thing. USC fans do not like Tim Drevno. They were letting me know that well ahead of time, you know, when he got to Westwood. But the job he did last year, and we've talked about this at length, Madman, was outstanding. I mean, this is the first time UCLA has led the Pac-12 conference in rushing since 1976, and it was under this offensive line unit, you saw just how he was able to elevate the guards that we had. You know, I thought John Gaines was a fringe, uh, you know, professional player last year. I had no kind of, you know, predictions of Mafi kind of becoming a professional himself. Both turned into legitimate NFL picks. 
both ranked in the top 10 guards in the entire country. And even Raekwon O'Neal, if you want to look at the PFF stats that have come out from the preseason, this guy was the highest rated tackle in preseason, any preseason game this year so far going for the Bucs. So just the job he did last year from the first game against Bowling Green to the last, I thought he had this unit humming. And it it bugged me that people still think Tim Drevzo is not a great offensive line coach. What are your thoughts about the O-line coming in this year? And more importantly, how good of a job Drevno did last year for the Bruins? Yeah, well, I'll start with the latter in terms of the job that Drevno did. And, you know, we we saw the first game together against Bowling Green. And that, especially those first two, three drives, we were like, you know, this this is going to be interesting to say the least. I think that we were firmly ready to, to press the panic button red with, you know, five exclamation marks. And then to see that group evolve over the, 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 the season to come. I also think, Will, what really helped, Drevno was phenomenal. I think you saw technique really come into play, both hand technique, base. You, you started seeing these guys getting more comfortable in what Chip was trying to do with, in terms of kind of the zone read from a spread perspective. And Drevno sort of understanding more of Chip and developing. But then I think also what helped, Will, was the schedule. And, you know, we talked last year about that kind of that September serving as a little bit of a preseason, if you will. It was kind of the three non-conference games and then Colorado. And for that group to get those significant reps over those four games to get comfortable, get their sea legs, Drevno doing the outstanding job, both tactically in terms of kind of schematics, also in the weight room, also in terms of nutrition. I think all of those things gave us a ton of confidence to make that jump. And it's funny you mentioned about about the SC fans and Drevno. I mean, that just speaks to how bad a coach Clay Helton was, you know. But but that's another yeah. topic for another day, uh, you know. But and I think moving forward now, there there have been some concerns. Obviously, you and I have kind of talked about it. What we saw in in spring practice, what we're sort of hearing in terms of fall camp, there is sort of a jump that needs to be made yet again this year. But seeing what Drevno was able to do last year, taking these raw prospects and two bona fide NFL guys on, in terms of rosters for this year. And let's see what happens with Raekwon. I think there's an opportunity as well. There is a huge jump moving forward. And so I think when you look at the base of this team, and I know you'll get into it, when you look at Holstege and you look at Wiley and you look at Clemens and you look at DiGiorgio, there is a core group here in terms of rawness and in terms of experience, where you're going to make that same jump. And I think, again, the schedule is sort of in UCLA's favor these first three, four games to really instill that system and then kind of be ready for that Utah game, uh, much in the way it was last year with Washington. Washington was that first game where we sort of made the jump in terms of competition. This year, I think it's going to be the Utah game. So I think we're, we're set up nicely for that. And I think also part of the struggles with the O-line in the spring and in the early fall, I think is more a testament to how good the defensive line is than necessarily the offensive line being significantly deficient. I think there's room to go for the offensive line, make no mistake. But I think when you look at who is in that UCLA front seven and in that front four, you're talking about experienced guys who are coming back, who have won awards, who are ready to even take the next step versus guys that are still trying to find themselves. Yeah, and I want to just kind of run down some of the guys and what we yep. think of them coming in. 
because there's about four or five guys that I feel confident about. You know, I think what I'm worried about is more of the depth side depth. of things. Like, it's very eerily reminiscent to those Brooklyn Nets teams. And I'm not saying any of these guys are the caliber of players. The starters you feel fine about. But once you got to the bench of those Nets teams, it's like, who is this, you know, Japanese guy, Yuta Watanabe, coming off the bench? Who is this guy coming off the bench? You don't know who these guys are. So in a lot of ways, it's a lot of, you know, discomfort as, a, as somebody that would watch the team going, if one injury happens or one tweak happens here, I don't know how much I can trust. Which it will, basketball. which it will. I mean, you're not going to go unscathed okay. from an offensive line standpoint over a whole season. You know, that's sort of an unreasonable expectation. So it's a great point, Will. Yeah, and the guy I want to start with, the people I feel most confident about, I feel like we have to start with him. Fifth year at UCLA, Duke Clements coming back to center. 32 starts to his name. A guy that I think plays, for all intents and purposes, the second most important offensive line position besides the quarterback's blind side, whether it's right or left tackle, depending if they're left or right. Uh, the center, it calls out the adjustments on the line. It's kind of the leader of the offensive line group, if you will, the captain of that unit. And, you know, the center is also relied upon to get those next second level blocks, similar to the guards, as well as like having all the tutelage of play calls in his arsenal. So Duke Clemens coming back, just having a guy that's had 30 plus games starting experience in college football, that is such a luxury at such a high value position. Talk to me about Duke Clemens. I mean, Chip brought him to media day. That should tell you how important this guy is to everything going on at UCLA. Will, I think Duke Clemens is the most important offensive player for UCLA this year. I mean, wow. as sort of crazy as that may sound, is when you look at, say, the quarterback position, we're talking about Garbers or more. I think most when who are watching this team very closely, you and I included, I think feel confident with either guy in terms of what they can bring to the table. When you look at the running back position, when it's a TJ Harden or a Steele or a Yankoff or even an Anthony Atkins, there is a certain degree of interchangeability there where you know that the chip scheme is going to produce great results. When you look at the wide receiver position, maybe outside a Sturdivant, you know, when you go kind of two through seven, there's an interchangeability piece there in terms of guys that have made big plays, had big games, you know, and, and have all the skill sets in terms of the tools to, to make great things happen. But when you look at the offensive line and you look at Duke Clemens, can you imagine breaking in a new quarterback and a new center in the same year? That would just be so challenging. And so the fact that you mentioned the 30-plus starts, Will, over the past four years, to me, the stat that's even greater than that is the 21 starts at center the last two years. So it's one thing to sort of, be at another position on the line, and then come into center. The fact that you have that anchor there in Clemens where he understands the position, he's played it for two full years at the highest level, he understands the scheme, he's been comfortable with Drevno, he's seen the path, the growth of an offensive line last year of where they started and where they went. All of those things put together, he is going to be that calming influence, particularly if Adante Moore is the starting quarterback where he's going to be young and is going to be relying on comfort wherever he can sort of find it in his true freshman season. So to me, Clemens is going to be a huge piece of the puzzle. I think he's the most important offensive piece of this whole team for all of those reasons. And I think he's going to, he's set up for a really nice year. I think he does things really well. 
when was the last time you saw UCLA get totally burned up the middle? He's he's a guy. When was the last time you saw UCLA have a terribly bad snap? You know, Clemens is a guy the last two years. He's provided stability at the position. He's been able to set up the timing of the offense very well. You've never really seen many plays of UCLA offense the last two years and said, ah, oh, the timing was off on that play. That is a direct function of how good your center is in terms of getting the play started, setting it up, going from snap to block, and being ready. So Clemens, to me, is really solid, and I'm really excited about him now taking that leadership role and being kind of the alpha within that room. Look, I think Holstead is probably more talented. I think Wiley's probably more talented. But I think Clemens is going to be the leader of that offensive line room. Yeah, and he's the only offensive lineman in the center position that handles the football themselves. Exactly. Very important. Ben Bolch had a great piece where I think it was about Clemens and Dante Moore in spring practice. It was like one of his first few days out there. He's commanding the huddle. Even Dante, who looked – you know, at 17 years old, one of the most calm, cool, and collected, you know, recruits we've had at UCLA. He kind of came into the huddle very disoriented. Everything was moving fast. And Clemens goes, hey, man, like, are you all right? Kind of, like, made him feel, you know, special right to start and then got him relaxed and ready to go. So that's the effect Duke Clemens has as the center in there. He's been around. He knows what to do in those positions. Next guy, another guy with 30-plus starts. This guy I think I had as the most highest ceiling of any player in the offensive line room, Mr. Spencer Holstege. I mean, we've gotten some great transfers, you know, your Sturdivants, your, your Fords, your Oladejas, your Carson Steeles coming into Westwood this past transfer. I'm going to piggyback off your statement. I think he is tied with Sturdivant to me as the number one transfer we've gotten just because of how important the offensive line was. This is a guy that was two time, all big 10 performer at the guard position, 31 starts to his name. Uh, he was the number one pass-blocking guard in the Big Ten last year and number six by PFF. Zero sacks allowed this past year. This guy was somebody that really made a difference on the Purdue Boilermaker offensive line room. Three-time academic All-Big Ten clearly fits the books and ball mantra of Chip Kelly. And just a guy I feel that we can just plug in there and just be fantastic from day one. Talk to me about our guy Spencer Olsteed because I think I might be most excited about him and potentially him going to the draft, knowing what we did with these guards and Mafia and Gates. Yeah, well, he's got the most upside because he's starting at the highest. You know, it's, it's sort of that age-old adage, you know, in, in street ball. You remember, you know, the old sort of white men can't jump movie, you know, the original where, you know, Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson kind of go to that tournament, that summer tournament, and they got the two brothers that they're playing, you know, in that tournament. And the tall guy, he's like, man, I'm, I'm going to the eighth floor and dropping you off at the fifth. You know, and so Spencer Holstein to me is the reason he's got the biggest upside because he's kind of starting on the fifth floor when some of our other other guys in this unit are maybe starting on the first or second floor for those reasons. Will I'm I'm not going to sort of repeat the accolades because you did it so well, but to me the big element of Holstein was his ability to perform at a very high level against arguably one of the best conferences in all of college football. Look at the guys that he went up against the last two years. When you look at the likes of the Michigans and the Ohio States and the Wisconsin's and the Penn States, look at some of the, the defensive line prospects of the last two years that he had to go up against head to head. And even in that Michigan game last year, everyone forgets Purdue was in the big 10 championship game last year. So he's going up head to head against this Michigan defensive line. 
in a Big Ten championship game. And Purdue was in that game for a lot of the, 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 the game. I mean, two and a half quarters, they were kind of in the game. And it was, it was sort of surprising how well that offensive line was holding up against that vaunted front four of Michigan. And Holstige was a huge part of that. I think there's an opportunity here to really anchor some of the plays around Holstige. And when you talk about the opportunity of being able to either rush to his side of the field or to be able to pull him in certain situations, can you imagine scenarios where you're in short yardage where you pull a Holstige and you sort of bring in an Atkins as maybe a lead blocker to sort of pave the road for one of these other backs. When you talk about being able to sort of go play action off of Holstige's side to be able to sort of open things up the other way, I think there's so much that he will allow this offense to find pace and space in. And I think that will start presenting itself in games five, six, seven, eight once there's sort of a feel for this offensive line unit. I couldn't agree with you more, Will. In terms of pure talent and and upside, I think that the guys, the two highest drafted players of UCLA coming out of this roster are going to be J. Michael Sturdivant and Spencer Holstich. So cannot be more excited about Holstich moving forward. Yeah, and it's just like when you're, you're sifting through resumes, you're hiring somebody. I've always said the Big Ten, there's different position groups, like skill position players, secondary, a lot of different things, SEC, like Reigns King. Those offensive line positions, those big fellas, the big uglies from the Midwest, if you will, those are the guys that I look at the Big Ten, like your Joe Thomases are Big Tens, your Taylor Luans, just big, broad-shouldered guys that can plant you in the dirt. And Holstege. I'm just looking at him. You have 31 starts in the Big Ten. Like that is, if you're reading just a resume standpoint, that's the guy I want to plug into my offensive line. So glad we got Holsteeds. That was awesome. Big transfer. We came out of spring practice, and we were really concerned with the offensive line. To be fair, DiGiorgio and Holsteeds had missed a lot of that time. So yes. the offensive line did look a little bit more chaotic than you would expect. But when we got the transfer of Jake Wiley from Colorado, this really was an addition that put me a little bit more at ease. And I know Colorado was horrendous last year, but this guy put his name into the transfer portal. 22 starts to his name, appeared in 30 games as a tackle at both left and right tackle, which is massive because he's flexible. He can play both sides. And, you know, he, he had offers from Purdue to try to go there. He had offers from... Cal, Washington State. It's hilarious that Cal offered him and we got him again. I'm just going to say it. I got Every time Cal comes up, I got to take a dig of it. It just is what this is at UCLA. But Jake Wiley, six foot six, 310 pounds. There's rumors he may move into guard. He may play tackle, whatever he fits best at. But just to get that level, like we've talked about the starting prowess with your Clemens and Holstege, with a very inexperienced offensive line to begin with, just a guy that's been out there and done it. You know, I think that makes such a difference. And to kind of piggyback of one of your early points, Trey Lance, all the talk about him right now as a 49ers fan is his inability to get the job done. And you look at it, he's only had like 12 starts in college. And before that, I think he threw like 100 passes in high school, whereas Purdy, that guy had like 48 starts to his name over four years at Iowa State. He just had the repetition. He had been in those situations and, you know, had played the game in a, in a well enough way where he was ready and prepared for that. 
you know, whereas Lance just didn't have the experience and has struggled mightily because of that. So getting a guy like Jake Wyatt that's been there, that's done it, that has trotted out against every Pac-12 team that they've faced, I'm just very confident, man. Give me your thoughts on Jake Wiley because I'm stoked that we were able to add him after the spring period. I am too, Will. And I think that you, you said it really well, the 20-plus starts. Again, Colorado has struggled the last couple of years, but look at who they were going up against as well. I mean, when you look at the offenses and some of these defensive lines, I mean, Will, you and I, a couple of years ago, we saw what, you know, Kayvon Thibodeau was at Oregon. We saw, you know, some of these, you know, we saw some of these guys, the defensive line at SC. We've seen some of the guys with Washington in the front four. Wiley's gone up against all of them over the last two seasons with 20-plus starts. What I love about him is three things. Number one, you spoke to it. It's the Swiss Army life element, right? I can put him at guard or tackle. I can put him in on left side or right side. And what that allows you to do is it gives you the freedom to see how are these other guys at the offensive line position, particularly when you may not have the quality of depth yet that you need to succeed completely over the course of a full season, it allows you to say, okay, I got to be very intentional with the guys that are going to be my core. I got to really set them up for success. So if there are other guys that do one thing particularly well, it allows me to then put Wiley in another slot. So there's tremendous value in that flexibility. The second thing, Will, for me is the 6'6". Six, six. You know, there's, there's a little bit of a difference between 6'3", six, 6'4", six, and 6'6". Six, six. And, and when you talk about his ability to sort of get up in your shoulder pad from down and up, and, 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 and sort of he's able to do that from sort of a 6'6 six, six frame, you know, he's so massive. What that does also is it sets up the quarterback to sort of understand you create arc in your pass because you're like, look, this guy's 6'6". Six, six. I got to get it over Wiley. And so what that does is it totally denies the opportunity for batted balls on his side of the field. And so because when you're that 6'6 six, six forces you to sort of be much more intentional with the arc when you've got a receive uh, alignment of that size. So I love the fact that he's 6'6", and he can sort of almost eclipse some of these defensive ends and defensive tackles with that ultimate size. The third thing, Will, that I think gets a little bit lost in translation is his intentionality of transferring from Colorado. Like, Dion just showed up. Coach Prime just showed up, and it was there was obviously the famous press conference where I'm coming with my Louis, I'm coming with my Gucci's. You know, you better be ready to play. And I think offensive line is one of those positions that you would argue is least impacted by a Coach Prime. Coach Prime is going to come in at more of the dynamic, explosive positions on both offense and defense. The fact to me that the moment Coach Prime showed up, he bolted for the transfer portal tells me that Wiley is all business. He's not really a big kind of talk guy. He's not a big sort of rah-rah guy. He wants to get down and get to work. He's a, he's a bring-your-lunch-pail-to-work kind of guy that's ready to get after it. And when you talk about who Chip Kelly really is and who Drevno really is, I think that's going to be a match made in heaven, and I think that's also going to show on the field. So in terms of his versatility, in terms of his height, and then just in terms of his seriousness, all three of those reasons is why I really like Wiley as a fit in this system. Yeah, and we spoke to Chip Kelly at Media Day, and one of the questions from the scrum was, what do you think about Jake Wiley? And yep. his response, he goes, 
This was a guy that played on a really bad team last year, but when he threw on the tape, it was a guy that kept standing out to us. He played faster than what that offense was about. He's more flexible than people give him credit for. And at six foot six, three ten, he can really get outside and run and get those extra blocks on the outside. So he was like, I think this is going to be a natural fit for us. So when Chip says it, it kind of gives some credibility to what Jake Wiley can actually bring to your football team. We'll try to tie these last two guys in, Garrett DiGiorgio and Kadir Kauna. And the two words that come for me is upside for both of these guys in a big way. We'll start with Kadir Kauna. He was a two-star defensive lineman coming out of high school, going to Old Dominion. A guy that really hadn't played much of the offensive line. Gets to Old Dominion, they go, you're six foot six, 306 pounds. Would you ever think about playing the line? He went in to start 26 games at tackle. And it's very eerily similar to, you know, kind of Dorian Thompson Robinson's progression, where he was a wide receiver up until his last year of high school. And now we're kind of seeing what he's doing, even in an NFL preseason stage and what he did at UCLA. So could you count as a guy where I, I look at and I just see upside because he's still learning the position and it was really good at Old Dominion. He could maybe potentially take his game to the next level for UCLA with the right tutelage, right coaching, right scheme that UCLA presents to him. And Garrett DiGiorgio, I mean, this was a guy that was a very solid right tackle within the conference. This was his first full year starting, 13 games last year, was doing a really good job at right tackle, you know, filling in for Alec Anderson. You know, all signs point to, you know, in life, you just continually get better as you get more time on the football field. If he was just regular, you know, last year, why can't he be an all-pack 12 performer at one of the tackle slots if he is able to build upon his success from last year? Talk to me about the Giorgio encounter because I love both of these guys and what they bring to the line. Both, both guys, I think, bring a really unique element there, Will. But before I talk about those two, I want to talk about you for dropping in that Gen Z term regular. I mean, my goodness, that was just so smooth. <laughs> right there that was that was phenomenal I you know, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll start with the Giorgio I think he brings an element of stability and when you talk about again being in this system last year starting watching sort of the maturation solid not spectacular I think is sort of the the consensus that he was last year I think his ability to make a jump I think will be significant but I think even if he can be incrementally better from last year and basically kind of replicate his performance from last year, I think that's going to be a huge plus for UCLA as they round this group out. And so I think DiGiorgio is going to be a guy that's going to really be vital, a vital kind of cog in the wheel in that front five to, to ensure that there's sort of stability all across that offensive line. With Conta, Will, he's interesting to me in terms of even more significant upside you talked about the two stars. You talked about Old Dominion. You talked about the 26 starts. There's a rawness to him. And I think that if he, there's going to be a moment here where it clicks for him and, and it all kind of comes together. It may click for him tomorrow. It may click for him game three, game eight, game 11. But at some point, it is going to click for him. And I think what is going to be really significant, DiGiorgio while Conta's trying to figure it out, I think DiGiorgio's stability is going to be critical because that gives you your, your five, right? And if, if, if DiGiorgio kind of takes a step back or if Conta's taking a little bit longer to develop, that forces you now to sort of have to go into your depth to sort of fill in a starting spot. So there's a tremendous domino effect there that is, has tremendous ramifications in terms of your season because 
even as you're building out your depth, if you're allowing your backups to be backups and set them up for success on reps in games and get them better in practice, they're going to get better with more confidence. If you kind of throw them into the lion's den when they're not really ready to be starters, they're going to get great experience, but there's going to be a significant drop-off in performance for the first four, five, six, seven weeks of the season. So these two guys, I'm really happy that you lumped them together because the stability of DiGiorgio and the upside of Conta kind of go hand-in-hand because these are the two guys that round out the line, the starting line. And both of those guys kind of need to play that role really well as sort of the back end of that line. If one of those guys sort of falls off and isn't really kind of making the projection and the progress that we're hoping for, then it forces you to sort of go into that depth where there's more questions. So I think so much of UCLA's early season success is going to be kind of keeping an eye on those two guys and how they're doing. But really like what DiGiorgio brings. Consummate professional, Will. Everyone, the whole team really loves him. Everyone says, you know, how he sort of approaches the game, always on time to everything, always sort of very engaging in the film room, always ready to do any rep. And then Conte, I think, still is sort of understanding there's a difference between Old Dominion and Pac-12 football. And I think he's starting to sort of figure it out. So excited about both of those prospects as well. Yeah, and I saw the video. James Williams actually talked to him about doing yoga. Big game James. Yeah, doing yoga, man. Uh, I mean, that that helps you out, your flexibility. He looks like a guy that he can get out and run. Like those yeah. swing plays, he's very lean for that six foot six, 300-plus pound range that he has. So this is about as big as an offensive line as we've had at UCLA in terms of heights and, you know, just strength in a long time. So I'm really excited what UCLA can bring this year. I'm a little worried about the bench, you know, the, the backups, your Bruno Fina's uh, mixed reviews on him in spring camp. I know some similar stuff has been said in the fall. Jalen Jeffers was a, you know, a redshirt junior. We've kind of been waiting for, you know, the Oregon guy hasn't really taken that next step that we've liked to see. Josh Carlin's been around here for a long time. Uh, you know, Benjamin Roy is the backup center. We've got a lot of offensive linemen incoming for next year in our recruiting class. I think we have four already committed. And you got to bank on the traditional chip, maybe two to three offensive linemen committing from the transfer portal at this point. But the depth just is the scariest part about this unit to me. And I think if they can fortify, they can get to seven or eight guys that they can rotate in when they feel confident about. That's kind of the sweet spot when it comes to the offensive line. So, Madman, any parting thoughts on the O-line preview? I mean, I'm this is the last unit we have to preview before the season comes up. I'm I'm literally so excited for UCLA football. Absolutely, Will. And I think your your last points about the line are are really significant there. I think O-line depth is gonna be a really huge barometer here in terms of what what this season is gonna look like. Because when you talk about this team and you talk about the excitement around this team with the insiders who who kind of have followed this team for a number of years who understand the nuance, the first word that comes to mind is depth. When you talk about the, the secondary, you talk about the front seven, you talk about Lineback. the receivers, you talk about the running back, you talk about the linemen. It's all depth, depth. This is the deepest we've seen it in X amount of years. This is the deepest we've ever seen it. This is the deepest we've seen it since Chip has been here. It's depth, depth, depth. The one area where the depth is a, a concern is O-line. And, you know, you said it best, Will. You kind of gave some individual examples of kind of guys not maybe taking that next step. For me, visually, there's a huge gap also. When you talk about size, 
you talk about girth, you talk about just mass. There is a pretty significant drop-off just physically from those five guys that we talked about to guys six, seven, eight, and nine. And so getting those guys the right nutrition, getting those guys in the weight room, this is going to take a little bit more time. These guys are a little bit more on the project side. It's not just you can sort of drop them in, and as they learn the scheme, as they sort of get their confidence, they're going to be fine. There's some fundamental deficiencies here physically for, for right now. And so that's why these five guys have to play such a pivotal role here. And you got to kind of keep your fingers crossed about injuries and, and just sort of productivity. Because if these five guys can kind of hold up for, for the majority of the season and the majority of the snaps, that's the one piece, the missing piece, that can take this team back to tie it into the beginning of our show of going from unranked to finishing in the top 15, possibly even the top 10 and playing for a Pac-12 championship. So super excited about all of that, Will. And here we go. We're, we're only a few days away from, from Bruin football where we can really get into it. So, so excited. This is going to be year three with you and me, Will. And so, you know, we talk about that magical year three, right, with coaches, with uh, quarterbacks, and so it's going to be a magical year three with uh, Will the Thrill Decker, a.k.a. Wizzy and, uh, and the Madman. Wizzy. Yeah, yeah. We'll get that <laughs> trademark, man. Wizzy and Madman. The Wizzy and Madman <laughs> show. Uh, much love to all who are listening. Uh, before I let you guys go, too, if you guys are still listening at this point, we are looking you know, for UCLA businesses to advertise on the show. We want people that are in the community that are brewing. They bleed blue and gold so please let us know if you guys are interested in that make sure you guys are liking and subscribing another podcast coming up later this week not sure exactly what the topic will be but it's going to be a good one i can assure you that much bruin bible we are officially out you guys have a great bruin bible listeners we've got a special sponsor uh for today's episode it is ag1 ag1 has been something that i've really enjoyed using in my spare time 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, and whole-source food nutrients in one scoop that you can use into your water. You stir it up. I use it before my workouts, before I start my day, and it has totally given me the energy I need to do the little things in life, like going to work, getting extra, you know, an extra boost, a second wind, if you will, for a workout before I play pickleball with my friends. Just it puts you in a good spirit of mind, and you know you're doing the healthiest possible thing by putting AG1 in your body. Make sure to check us out and get a special deal with the Bruin Bible. It's www.drinkag1.com slash Bruin Bible to get the special deal that we provide. Once again, www.drinkag1.com slash Bruin Bible to get that special deal. Now, back to the Bruin Bible.